0: The late 19th century is a a major moment for anti-colonial struggles for the black world. And it's not uncommon to see in the literature, uh, the Battle of Adwa, 1896, Ethiopia defeats Italy, Uh, the Zulu Wars, Uh, there's a ton of depictions of these these successful or these major anti-colonial wars against European colonialism. But Oceania is usually left out and um, I just think I just think that's 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 a problem. Um, you know, if we're trying to be really diasporic and how we look at black struggle. Uh, I think this also brings up for me the 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 need to go beyond just anglophone paradigms of thought and to look into the black francophone world as a place of radical thought, um, radical experiences. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be, you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction
1: of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi,
0: I'm Magrida Waku. I'm
1: Caroline Honoreal. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is a Phenomalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales.
0: Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle.
1: Hello, everyone. Today for a new episode on the Phenomenalist podcast, I have the great joy of having for, uh, for guest uh, Kito Swan, who is a professor of African-American and African diaspora studi- studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh, he is the author of three books, uh, Black Power in Bermuda, The Struggle for Decolonization, uh, Paulo Diaspora, Black Internationalism and Environmental Justice. And one book that's just about to to come out, uh, an incredible book, incredibly important, uh, called *Pacifica Black: Oceania Anti-colonial, Anti-Colonialism and the African World*. And uh, and so we are we're having this conversation in the context of our January February issue dedicated to uh, the ocean, from the Black Atlantic to the Sea of Islands. And uh, and I'm in- incredibly happy to to have Kito on uh, for this conversation and as part of this issue. So hi, Kito.
0: Lepo, <laughs> uh, really excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I prepared a, a set of questions that I already sent you, but I, I might just add a little one to it. We, uh, uh, as I quoted your two first books earlier, could you could you perhaps tell us a little bit what you were... Uh, trying to do with those two first books and how how somehow they very organically lead to this third book, uh, Pacifica Black.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Well, so I'm a scholar of black internationalism. Um, you know, my earlier concerns with the black world were centered around black power as a global phenomenon. I'm also from the island of Bermuda, and so I grew up and interested uh, in learning more about black power's impact in the island. Uh, Black Power in Bermuda was an anti colonial youth movement that really pushed back against British colonialism. The island is still the British colony. Uh, at the apex of the movement, Bermuda's British governor, his bodyguard, and also the British police chief, the island were all assassinated. And the was in 1972 and 73, a young uh, Activist named Buck Burroughs was eventually caught and hung in 1977 uh, for the assassinations and uprisings took place across the island. I was born in the 1970s. but Given the British government's attacks on Black power and propaganda regarding Black power, this entire intense movement was relegated to a crazed gunman shot the governor one night, as opposed to this was an intersection of a global movement of black power that was impacting the entire world. Um, so I was trying to capture that story in the first book, Black Power in Bermuda. Uh, one of the key architects of the movement was a young Roosevelt Brown, also known as Paulo Camerica Fago, who organizes the first international black power conference in Bermuda in 1969, which is attacked by the British, the French, Canadian, and local white Bermuda governments. Um, during a conference, he is invited to Australia by a group called the Aborigines Advancement League, which was a Black Power formation out of Melbourne. Uh, he travels to Australia. This is all 69, 1970. In that process, he gets involved in Black liberation struggles for freedom in Oceania, largely Wanawatu. And so, the second book, Paulus Diaspora. I was attempting to trace his international travels. He also spent time in Cuba. He was in Liberia. He was in Kenya, working in sustainable development. Uh, you know, your background in architecture, feel you appreciate um, his intersections with ecological engineering and Pan Africanism. He organizes the Sixth Panacrian Congress, which takes place in Tanzania in 1974. And he invites leaders from two struggle to that meeting. So his life was this, this interesting intersection with the Black Pacific. But in documenting his travels across Africa, the Americas and Oceania, I became really interested in Oceania's other liberation struggles, uh, which produces Pacifica Black, which is centered on a number of political movements, Black political movements across Australia, Fiji, slash uh, New Caledonia, Wanawatu, and also Papua New Guinea.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. And so moving on to, to this book that's coming out in, uh, in March 2022, um, which is entitled Pacific Black, and uh, is being published at, um, uh, at NYU Press. Um, so that if we start with the title itself, Pacifica Black, this suggests uh, as Pacifica as an adjective and black as a noun, that your primary goal might have been to make Melanesia surge into the global discourse on blackness, which tends perhaps to be quite Atlantic centric, even more even more than to make blackness surge into the political history of Oceania. Is, do you, is that a correct assumption? And if so, could you speak to, to this necessity to multiply the sites from where blackness is articulated?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it is a pretty accurate assumption. Um, you know, I was thinking a lot about what, what does or would or did blackness and race look like from the perspective of Oceania and the Pacific. If you centered the Pacific in the discussion, What does Blackness look like? Um, And I was interested in going beyond the uh, Atlantic formations because I think all too many times Atlantic formations problematically have encouraged us at least mainstream history to look at African history as something that starts with the Atlantic slave trade. And clearly African history does not stop with the Atlantic slave trade. And the African diaspora does not start, or end with the trade as well. And the architects of African diaspora studies like Joseph E. Harris out of Harvard University were really keen about looking east of Africa, of Black populations that left Africa voluntarily as opposed to involuntarily, who may have been east, who may have been by land, by sea, um, so you know, if you look at the migration patterns of indigenous peoples into Oceania, you know, these this is often before, you know, terms like black or white in terms of racialized terms are even created, right? This is before there's a Europe, this is before there's an Africa by name. Uh how do you conceptualize those experiences and how do we give some agency, or at least some recognition that as these Atlantic formations, a race of being codified, <clears throat> the in conversation, the systems of enslavement, colonialism, um, white patriarchy across the world. In other words, the creation of the quote unquote, Negro of the Americas is in the same moment of the creation of the, the cannibal of Melanesia or Melakula. That's part of the same conversation. Um, the racial hierarchies that are created you know, they span Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Ocean worlds. So in, in that context, if you looked at the experience of people who were racialized and colonized as being Black in Oceania or the Pacific, what does that mean, right? And also, you know, I was interested in what are some of the specific ways in which communities racialized as Black identified with Black political movements outside of Oceania? as opposed to saying, you know, simply saying phenotypically these persons look black mm. and therefore this is what black is. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm really keen about intentionality. And so how do these communities actively display the sense or critiques of blackness uh, in Oceania? And I also was interested in how some of the major architects of movements like Pan-Africanism or Ethiopianism Engage the Pacific in their conceptions of blackness. So, for example, the UNIA and Marcus Garvey, you know, they had a they had a notion of Oceania. Uh, M.A. Cesar and Negritude, um, you know, they also saw Oceania as part of this broader black world as well. So, I was trying to say a lot in the title, and often also you can't say everything in a title, but also it was a, a I was finally saying to uh Bislama, you know, creolized and also national language of Wanawatu, Um, you know, spent Pacific. So I was speaking to that. I was also speaking to Pacifica, which is sometimes problematically utilized in the region, but also really historic, coming out of um uh, Maori political struggles as well, and engagements with Pacifica as a broader, a term of, of I would say, you know, ethnic solidarity across the the european created boundaries of melanesia polynesia micronesia i was trying to kind of speak beyond that as well uh
1: well thanks because that really gives us like uh the the the, the millennia uh, the millennia of histories of 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 black people in in oceania uh to, as a as a good uh, way to contextualize the second question which indeed talks about uh, uh, the the transatlantic uh, slave trade as um, as being in its in its unfathomable horror, it tends to situate the enslavement of black people to the sole Atlantic, uh, at times sometimes associated with the Indian Ocean. I mean, especially with the the history of um, of uh, well, the the history of of the slave trade on the on the east coast of the African continent. Uh, and your work brings brings back into focus the horrifying practice of what has been called uh, blackbirding in Melanesia could you tell us about it
0: yeah i mean i think this is a <clears throat> another a really important important theme obviously I mean, we're talking about the atlantic slave trade trading human beings we're talking at least some 12 to 15 million uh people so by no way shape or circumstance you know what i suggest we should minimize our study of not just slavery in the atlantic world but also its impact in modern day capitalism its connection with colonialism and the current world we find ourselves and similarly i think we should also give more focus to that experience in the indian ocean along the arabian peninsula uh Systems of enslavement that occurred before the Atlantic once again, African diaspora studies was always curious about you know these phenomena. African diaspora studies predates the notion of a black Atlantic, at least in terms of where scholarship has centered discussions on diaspora I think we've we've went in a different direction um but Blackburn in, in Melanesia is another one of these examples of you know, how we must be vigorous when we think about the human capacity to exploit others, right? in, in the 19th century, uh, at least some, some 70,000 individuals are captured from primarily Wanoi to uh, more large Melanesia and taken to, forcibly taken uh, to work on sugar and, and cotton plantations in Queensland, Australia, but also cotton plantations in Fiji. Uh, there were Polynesian communities taken into the Andes, South America, and worked in in, in the mines of the region, uh, connected with the ending of Atlantic uh, slavery. So, while it's not a question, but it's not a question of numbers, right? It's, you know, um, but it's still significant when we think about. Blackness, when we think about how modern conceptions of blackness are connected with who is defined to be enslaved and whose labor is defined to be exploited, um, black bodies are usually placed at the bottom, you know, uh, hence the name Black Birding. Uh, once again, some 70,000 taken to Australia. But for me, um, I was not only interested in, in that experience, I was also interested in how that creates new diasporas. Mm. Um, so now there's communities in Australia and known as the South Sea Islanders. But it's Australia's path to being a nation. Um, and this is a very, this was a very vicious practice. I mean, uh, young girls were sexually abused by traders. Sometimes these traders were, you know Southern Americans. Uh, who were concerned, you know, of the impact of the Civil War on the cotton Expeditions. Um, so it was a very transnational process. These captains sometimes used ships that were used in the Atlantic slave trade. Um, indigenous persons also fall back, right? you have a number of payback killings, where European missionaries are killed in response to, you know, community members disappearing from places like Tana in the Wanawatu. Uh, but just like, just how, you know, when Europe uses the ending of the Atlantic slave trade to justify colonizing Africa, the number of laws and, and slave suppression laws, uh, you know, the British were used, Australia rather would use the notion that they were gonna protect um, the lives of white missionaries to further colonize Papua New Guinea. All Wanawatu, you know, the notion that we have to stop this black burden trade, but it was connected with colonialism. <clears throat> Australia, you know, creates itself as a new nation on the line, on the on the lines of Terranalis, suggested that there was no one or no communities in Australia before the British showed up. So part of the White Australia policy were laws to deport these thousands of, of laborers who now had. Formed families and lived in Australia, and they deported hundreds, if not thousands, at the turn of the century and turn of 1900 rather. But some stay. Um, I was interested in how their conceptions of diasporas and blackness become part of the dead experience, which is not simply a Aboriginal experience of, in, of Indigenous Australians. How does it impact internationalism? In the era of black power was one of my, my questions i was interested in how civil rights leaders in australia like faith bandler whose father was blackbirded who was politicized by his stories and he was adamant that he was enslaved even though australia claimed that this not this is not a story of slavery you know they claim these folks were were paid um sofse you know, really vividly said, suggested and, and stated otherwise. But Faith Bandler talks a lot about how this sparked her political consciousness. Uh, Patricia Corwer becomes a major black power activist. She's actually one of the activists in the Aborigines Advancement League who invites Paulo Kama to Australia. Um, she goes to the United States in 1970 to, to a conference called the Congress of African Peoples in Atlanta, which is a really major moment of black power, and on her return, instead of going to Australia, she wants to go back to Wanawatu, she wants to go home. So in a space of Pan-Africanism, for her home and return is going to back to Wanawatu because that's where her her family were blackbirded from. Uh, while she's there, she's availed by the British and the French governments who are concerned that she's handing out red, black and green badges They know she's attended a Black Power Conference, and she's put on the stop list. And years later, she denied entry into the country. So those things, for me, the notion of Black burden is not simply just a 19th century experience. It has a lot of relevance in terms of citizenship, in terms of colonialism, and Black political thought in the era that I'm looking at, which is really the 1960s, 1970s, and beyond.
1: Thanks a lot. Um, So my very first encounter with your work before uh, having the great honor of of reading the the proof of your book uh, has been with a text that you've wrote about the 1955 Bandung Conference and how our romanticization of it with regards to third world solidarities er, uh, erases the fact that uh, the conference was organized by the Indonesian state that was uh, actively colonizing the Papu- papuasian the, the papuasian land of east timor and west, Papu- west papua sorry so sorry the, the land of east timor and uh, and west papua which were thus invisibilized as a colonial anti-colonial struggle um can you perhaps talk about about this as well as the forms of solidarities that have been extended to them from the african continent i'm, I'm thinking in particular of of Senegal with West Papua and Mozambique with East Timor?
0: Yeah, this is, this is for me was, was, was something else. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily say, um, you know, the, the, the broader project of Afro-Asian solidarity, uh, you know, for me, I wouldn't say it's simply um, romanticization. Uh, I do think that at times we do romanticize. But I do think there's a lot of relevance and significance to you know the notion of Afro-Asian solidarity in regards to colonialism. Um, but I had to reconcile that with you know the problematic space of Bangdong, which is still used as a critical rallying point for conversation of Afro-Asian solidarity from Malcolm X, uh, the Black Panthers. Um, but once this this goes back to the you know the first or the second question rather, Pacific or black right if if you look at black movements, black international thought from the perspective of the Pacific, what do you see? If you look at Bangdong from the perspective of a black Pacific, does it challenge how we see Bangdong? And if we've raised the question from the perspective of West Papua or West Papua into very Firmly have identified with the black world. It's also a place of problematic um, colonialism. Um, you know, it's yeah, Bangdong legitimizes Indonesia's claims to West Papua, uh, which borders Papua New Guinea. Uh, but all these things, you know, Papua New Guinea is at one point is Papua and New Guinea, right? It's, there's German colonization. I mean, this it, German's first colonies is is, is New Guinea uh New Guinea itself being you know called New Guinea because european explorers identified the indigenous person they're looking like guinea africans in guinea in terms of in in, in west africa um but this is also why we we should look beyond the atlantic and we think of other other systems of slavery and colonialism and the dutch and the french and the portuguese who were actively in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific worlds. The Dutch colonized West Papua and Indonesia. And in the moment of decolonization, Indonesia wins its independence. But there'd be no calls for Indonesia to occupy West Papua if it wasn't for Dutch colonialism. It's Dutch colonialism that puts Indonesia and West Papua really in the same political conversation. West Papuans would say, ethnically, historically, racially, they're not Indonesian. Um, and they'd rather they identified as being Melanesian or being Black. And identifying with Melanesia also suggested identifications with Africa, the Black world. And so when they sought support uh, in, in their struggles for independence, um, one of the statements that came up was that they were having some activists stated they were having issues convincing some person in the black world um of the need for independence because these individuals were blinded by Bang And that's that became the title of, of the piece, Blinded by Bang That being said, uh West Papuan political struggles were able to garner a ton of support from people like. Leopold Senghor, your, your namesake, um, another architect, in Senegalese architect of Negritude, uh, who you know also is president of Senegal, and in that presidency allows West Papua to establish a political base in Dakar. This is also critical for me, as someone who studies black internationalism, I'm interested in how there are other nodes or hubs of Black internationalism beyond our familiar Harlems or London, uh, even Paris. There's also Dakar, uh, there's also Sydney, or right? there are these other major cities of, of, of Black international exchange. And Dakar becomes one of these spaces. Uh, in the mid 1970s, there was a major conference that I talk about, uh, organized by Wole Yinka, which brings scholars, artists, writers from the Black world to convene, there, they meet um, one of the international voices of West Papua, a man named Ben Takama, uh, who was interviewed, who presents at the conference. And so Yinka, they make this really powerful declaration of the need to support not only West Papua, but also East Timor, which was being colonized by the Portuguese. Um, some of these relations, as you mentioned, also overlap with Mozambique, East Timor's Revolutionary Struggles, also defined as a Melanesian space, identified with Freelimo, uh, the Freeland. Um, the book is much, very much more about Senegal and West Papua and East Timor, but, but Mozambique, that's another really critical critical space because I was very much interested in this direct connection between Africa and Oceania. Tanzania is also really important in this discussion, but that that's, you know, I, I think I'll answer that. I'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about Wanawatu. But this is a struggle that's ongoing. Uh, you know, Indonesia, the West Papua was still a colony of Indonesia. Um there were consistent protests that take place in Indonesia, which you know it's it's a critical issue because the Melanesian Spurhead Group, which is created out of Wanawatu, which was, you know, established to address these further issues of colonialism. Indonesia is now a member of the Melanesian Spurhead Group through West Papua. And so that's just intensified these really critical dynamics. And, you know, what activists said then, um, as they do now, is that there was some distinguishment between Indonesia as a state and citizens of Indonesia who may or may not be politicized around this issue. Um, so I think the the question and the, the project of Afro-Asian solidarity is still critical, but the case of in Indonesia is, is, is a problematic, problematic sewer point um, that you know, we shouldn't just ignore.
1: So one of the many things that I'm deeply appreciative of, uh, in your book is, is bringing the Kanak struggle for liberation at the core of the book. Uh, and yeah, because I mean, anglophone descriptions of the Kanak struggle are tend to be scarce. And as a result, internationalist solidarity with Kanaki is also a little bit limited as we can really see right now. Uh, could you, but I mean, but, I, I should I should add also for French solidarity with Kaneki is quite limited as well, which is even more which is even more uh, uh, depressing, to say the least. Um, could you could you address around around Anglophone readership and advocate for the crucial dimension of this 168 year old fight against French at Colonialism?
0: Yeah, I, I would admit, um, you know, for myself, when I was studying, when I was researching the second book, de Diaspora, I had the fortune of being in Wanawatu, um, which is a really special place and a, an amazing place for a ton of reasons, particularly for those who are interested in oceanic liberation struggles and also black liberation struggles because of Wanawatu's positionality around being a hub of, 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 of black internationalism and Wanawatu's stance in that its independence wasn't enough if its brother and sister struggles um, or sister, sister communities were also not free. Specifically, the um, Kennec struggle in Caledonia, Tahiti, West Papua. So Wanawatu archives, for example, the Wanawaku National Parks Archives are full of you know, a depiction of this relationship and this intense movement. And also, just as in the case of Senegal, uh, these want to open its doors for these liberation struggles to have missions there. And so I was fortunate to meet various Kennec leaders uh, in the same spaces with well West Papua activists as well. Um, so it's, so it's, it's a struggle that, I mean, we mentioned earlier, it's really emotionally moving. Um, Particularly, also for someone like myself from a small island that's still colonized by this bigger power, right? And and you look back and you see how you know the other small states have also now they've achieved independence, but you're still stuck in this moment of time. There was a lot that I saw in you know Kanaky struggle that I also saw in that I also saw in in Bermuda. Um, so the one of the things that grabbed me was, you know, how significant the liberation movement was for other oceanic struggles, uh, largely because of a Thai, and I'm, I'm, I am may be mispronouncing um, his name, but a tie led a, a chief of Thai led a major revolt against the French in 1878. Uh, and for me, this was, this was critical because the late 19th century is a, is a major moment for anti-colonial struggles for the black world. And it's not uncommon to see in the literature, at least in Atlantic context, uh, the Mm -hmm. Battle of Adwa, 1896, Ethiopia defeats Italy, uh, the Zulu Wars, uh, there's a ton of depictions of these these successful or these major anti-colonial wars against European colonialism. But Oceana is usually left out. And I just think I just think that's 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 a problem. Um, you know, if we're trying to be really diasporic and how we look at black struggle. Uh, I think this also brings up for me the 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 need to go beyond just anglophone paradigms of thought and to look into the black francophone world as a place of radical thought. Um radical experiences. For me, the negritude movement is not just a movement of culture, it's also a really political, anti-colonial movement. Uh, if I, the folks like sheik anthe um would say that affirmatively around Amy Cesar's work, right? It was just poetics of anti-colonialism that pushed his version of negritude. So in that context, I was interested in a city like Paris or Black Paris you know just as we can talk about how w- british west indians will meet african people i from the gold coast in london both colonized by the british what does paris do for black people in a similar context it's including oceania and so you know part of the, the this that part of the book was looking at how activists from New Caledonia, kind of active New Caledonia would learn or study or read about France Fanon, uh, black power, uh, negritude, how would they take the ideas of black international thought and transform them in ways that can address or speak to black populations colonized in Kenaki. Uh, so groups like Grupo 1878, which is, you know, based upon in recognition of this this, 19th century struggle, um, Palika. uh, And I was just blown by the the amount of intensity and the trail in which kind of activists, not only in the the fight against the French, but in the fight against the French, able to reach out to the black world, in ways that I think we seem to tragically just forget. Um, The United Nations floor becomes a major space for these exchanges. You have black anthropologists like Angela Gilliam, who worked with activists like Dewey Gorday, uh, another kind leader who travels across the world through women's groups, um, uh, literature groups, Black power, you know, political imprisonment. There's so much in this kind struggle that I think you know, we could learn from. Um, and also, I think the struggle has needed support. Uh, as you know, in your own work, you know it also was marked by some tragic, tragic assassinations and tragic deaths uh, by the French army, who and, and French settlers who killed a number of these Kanak leaders, and also violence within the Kanak political struggle that have, I would say, emotionally um, upset the movement for, for several decades. So, a part of this section of the book was also about. Trying to draw attention to this ongoing struggle, just like in West Papua. Um, because, you know, it's, it's not yet free. there's still the Department of France. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the push for, for, for liberation, self-determination is, isn't over by any, by any stretch of the imagination. And this is a clear example of that.
1: In, indeed, and uh, and uh, one of the biggest lies that uh, the the French colonial authorities have managed to have managed to spread in Kanaki is is the denigration of uh, of Vanuatu um, Vanuatu since nineteen eighty and its in its independence. Uh, I mean, clearly, I think it's uh, we've we've heard from you how important Vanuatu is in in uh, in the argument you are articulating, and so let's let's talk about that with this uh, victorious struggle um against like this quite remarkable british french colonial condominium uh walter lini may be its most known figure as the country's first prime minister could you could you perhaps talk about his fights with the uh, vanua vanua kupati and then for the melanesian political unity i mean you already you already sort of already touched upon it but perhaps we can go deeper and uh, his solidarity with Kanaki in West Papua, as well as the creation of what he called a Melanesian socialism?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, you wanawatu know, is, is a fabulous space. Um, but, this, but this section of, of the book also highlights is the critical role that Black liberation theology plays in Black liberation. Walter Lennie was an Anglican minister. His father, um, you know, practice indigenous um, spiritual beliefs. So he was raised with that context. He was raised with an affirmation of indigenous folklore, spiritual traditions, which, and I would say him and also his sister Huda Lenny, who was a critical leader in the Wanawaku party's women's wing. Um, Walter Lenny is, is very much a, a Pan-Africanist. Um, you know, his, his name if 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 you look at the pantheons of of pan Africanism, you won't see Walter Linny's name, uh, but you know Walter Linny should should be there. Um, the Melanesian socialism, you know, part is, is really striking because the party was really interested in what Julius Nyerere was doing in Tanzania, and I mentioned Pablo Camarca he ends up in in Wanawatu at the time in the mid 1970s in the, the New Hebrides, and he invites uh, Barack Sope, who's a major um, voice of the Wanawaku Party, he was involved in liberation struggles or so organising Wanawaku's liberation struggles as a student at University of South Pacific. Um, the Wanawaku Party also had students studying at the University of Papua New Guinea, which was an, a major space for transforming Melanesia from being a really negative colonial term to a term of, of Black modernity. Uh, there are networks across UPNG and Papua New Guinea, University of South Pacific, and Fiji, um, that the Walker Party has benefited from. They're benefiting from these relationships. And also with Paulo Camara who connects them to a broader Black world beyond the Oceania. Uh, he organizes for them to come to Tanzania. So the delegation has a chance to look firsthand and see what Naori is doing with what he's calling African socialism. Uh, through Ujamaa, what they call the Ujamaa system, which was really a system of village development at the village level. So what Walter Linney is actually trying to do in Manawatu is that same idea around a paradigm of Melanesia and once again, Melanesia is being recodified academically politically from UPNG um, through a number of Wangani seminars. And this is, this is really this is really important. Uh, because if you're going to have a nation, the, the, one of the first questions is how what's development mean? And what we develop along the lines of neocolonialism, as we see in Africa. I and mean, just pause for a second because Wanawatu's struggle, right, is the mid-1970s. So they also have the advantage of seeing what has taken place in Africa in terms of decolonization and the pitfalls of nationalism. So they're trying to avoid Africa's route. But they're not able to achieve independence until 1980. Because, as you mentioned, this is vicious fight against French and British colonialism, but colonized by both nations at the same time. There are different sets of laws. There are different courts. There are four different courts in Wanawatu: one for French citizens, one for British citizens, a native court, and then a mixed court administered by a Dutch and, and Spanish judge. Uh, to the extent that activists call it a pandemonium, so the British, you know, the British would say the French were pushing things back. The French are saying it's the British fault. Uh, So for for the New Hebrides National Party, which Linnea founded, I believe, in 1971, they had to look internationally for broader support. And for them, this was the Black world. And Paulo Cameron Kamrakafega was a a really critical figure in this dynamic. Um, He had extensive connections at the United Nations. As I mentioned, he's a cornerstone Black power activist, Pan-Africanist. And he actually is deported from Vanuatu, in the mid 1970s by the British who had considered flying in troops from Fiji, uh, Hong Kong or Britain to extract him and also to prepare for an uprising by members of the Wanawaka party who had no idea that this was even taking place. And I'll, I'll end by saying, um, this is one critical moment where Paulo was arrested by the police is taken to the main airport to be deported this is 1975 the party had his members um drive to the airport they drove into the tarmac they parked their cars in front of the plane uh barack so for example shouts black power at the pilot clashes break out um, you know folks are arrested eventually paulo is is deported um, and they built a fence around the airport after that. This is 1975. I mentioned a few questions earlier. Patricia Korwa, who was a Blackwell activist from Australia, um, she, you know, had been put in the stop list from her visit in Wanawatu in 1970. She returns right after this Apollo incident. And she's not allowed to... You know, uh, enter the country. And Hilda Lenny, Walter Lenny's younger sister, is at the airport about to pick her up. And now there's this fence that's been built since the Paulo incident. And she asks Patricia to just hop over the fence. (laughs) Um, Patricia's pregnant at the time, so she doesn't do it. Um now now for me, you know, that, that that's this metaphor is so striking because then the, the image of the airport, um a black woman who's a descendant of folks blackbird to Australia, who now has returned to Wanawatu to, to do work with a women's group, but she can't enter the country because the British and the French have colonized the space, have built a fence in response to a Black Power activist from Bermuda, um, who's encouraging members of the Party to go to Africa, to connect with Tanzania. Um, To to me, that's just a, a, that moment itself has hundreds of years of history within it. Uh, When Wanawatu woke woke up independent in 1980, Paulu was invited back and the party actually used his passport um, because they didn't have passports. Um, they were preparing to deport the French resident from the country because the French resident had not allowed uh, members of the party to enter New Caledonia because they were trying to work with Kanak Freedom Fighters. So in response, they said, we're going to expel the French resident. They used Paulu's passport the dimension of his passport um, for the stamp that would they, they would use to expel the French because they didn't even have passports because of British colonialism. So I just thought to me that was also really striking. Um, it's, it's like the, the Bob Marley song, the stone that the builder refused will always be the head corner stone It's Palau's passport is used to now deport the French um, from Wanawatu. And I mean, there's a lot more I could say about about that struggle, but one of what to is to understand Oceanic liberation struggles, the potentials and the pitfalls of Melanesian solidarity, um, questions of nuclear-free Pacific. Um, it's 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 the place.
1: Wonderful. Perhaps uh, as a as a last question, can you tell us a little bit about the photo on the cover of the book?
0: So, the photo is from. The mid nineteen eighties, uh, the 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 artist, the photographer is Bruce Canoe, who was in New Caledonia. Um, well, I'm sure I guess we'll, you'll you'll put it up for your, your listening audience. The website there's a there's a young Kanak girl uh, holding a rifle. Uh, this is right on the cusp of a major occupation of Kennecke by the French army. And so it, it speaks to the intensity of the moment. Um, you know, the notion of the, that, that a young girl has to be prepared to fight for freedom um, in our own community is really striking. And at this moment, a number of Kennecke leaders are being killed or about to be killed and assassinated by the French. Um, I thought it said a lot. Um, and it also once again speaks to the intensity of the struggle that's still continuing.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much, Kito, for this incredible conversation. And uh, and again, like I, you know, you said how Walter Lini should be like in the pantheon of of Pan Africanism. I think your book should be also very much in all those Pan African books. <laughs> so thank you. That's, that's
0: that's that's humbling. Thank you.
1: I honestly would not know how we could do this Ocean issue without this conversation. So I'm I'm so glad we had it. Thank you again so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to come back anytime.
1: <laughs> Good, great.